I'm Aton, it's Friday, and this is the Friday show. Now, normally I'd have a pithy intro lined up, but honestly, it just doesn't feel very, very respectful right now whilst our friends in Salford are having such a hard time. So I think I'm just going to dive straight into this podcast with my co-pilots. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by George and by Chris. Morning, Chris. Morning, Sam. Morning, George. How are you, mate? Morning, George. Good morning, guys. How are we all doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm groovy. I've had a, a spring in my step all week. So, uh, uh, yeah. Now, now, be respectful. Oh, yeah, sorry. You I'm, uh, be- I'm um, you know, keeping my head down, shuffling through, and uh, not really paying much attention to the football at all. Excellent. Chris, now be respectful. How has your week been? Um, I've been very busy with work. Uh, I've done a lot of cultural things, which is very nice. And uh, yeah, and I've not really taken much notice of other teams' footballing situations. So yeah, I mean, I've had a spring in my step since 2014, so I'm a generally happy person. So uh, excellent! Wow, that's a, you've had a spring in your step for a while. That's uh, you've definitely been on a on a very good run. Well, look now, since you've both been very respectful, I'm going to have to pull you back from that respect just a little bit and remind you that the last time Manchester City played football, it was in fact the derby at Old Trafford, aka the League Roof Ground. Was it? It was. Oh, I, it was. was it really? Are you sure wow. about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, the the I, last I, game I we played was the Leaky Roof Ground game and of it finished it three goals to Manchester City and zero goals to Manchester so United. Our uh, so it did. friends from Salford. So what I want to do is have a little chat, look back at the week and begin by looking back at that game. Now, I feel that, and it's often the case when, uh, when United get filleted by City in a derby, is that all of the focus lands on United uh, and not enough is made of just how good City were. So, Chris, I'm going to start with you. How well do you think City played at Old Trafford last weekend? Well, apologies for the cliche, but you can only play what is put in front of you. And every result that a team plays is relative to to the opposition and what challenge that that opposition brought. And I thought that in the second half in particular, City were imperious. And there is the caveat that United by that point were effectively training cones. But however, as I said, you can only navigate what's put in front of you. And I think that that City exercised a lot of self-doubts they may have had that were creeping in the last few weeks, a couple of Mm. poor results, a few players not quite fulfilling their their season potential. Um, And a sense that, United always is, as previous seasons have shown us, even when we've been dominant, that United can somehow miraculously get a derby result, uh, often at the Etihad. And it just felt like many things were kind of neutralised, really. I think we were better in the second half than we were in the first half, but I also think United were far inferior in the second half as well. But we did as much as we needed to do. And whilst there were not as many goals as I would have liked, um, the manner with which we 
brush them aside, I think, was the most satisfying thing. I think after that, after that performance, regardless of that it's United, clearly in a shocking state at the minute, I think every other team in, in the division would have looked and said, right, yes, yeah, City are actually possibly starting to kick into a higher gear a little earlier than we're used to them doing. Usually we get it like January, Feb. I'm starting to see those gears start, start to shift now. So it was a delightful game, but I just, I just saw the City that I'd not seen fully for the last four or five fixtures. I felt that they were back in, in, in a much fuller force. Absolutely. Um, George, how much of that do you think was down to the uh, Rodri Stones axis? And how much do you think we've missed that axis since the start of the season? I think a lot of it is that it's down to that axis. It was it was the cornerstone of which the treble was built on, really. And during the home stretch last season, we depended so much on those two in the middle of the pitch sweeping up everything at the back and then starting our progressions forward. And I think Stones being injured for most of the start of the season and Rodri's ban kind of uh, not took the wind out of our sails, but uh, clipped our wings a little bit in the sense of what we were used to doing um, on the pitch, both off the ball and on the ball. Mm. So I think those two being back fully fit, playing together and also having a, it not being their first game back together as well. They'd had a, a game or two to kind of get back into the rhythm. I think it just, they just were a class apart from the opposition they were facing really. And the only chances that came about for United in the first half were gift wrapped and uh, first class delivered uh, from ourselves. So absolutely. I think I think those two being fully fit, playing together in the big matches, always makes me feel very confident, and and I think rightly so. Yeah, I I, I think uh, I'd be interested to know what you both think. Funnily enough, the win was one thing, but as important for me was the clean sheet. I definitely felt mm. as though there was like a, a sort of a creeping leaking of goals, silly goals, annoying goals, goals that shouldn't happen, goals that you look at and go, lads, you're better than that. Um, so, and uh, as George has just alluded to, there were a few moments in the first half where it looked like we might give them something stupid and something silly. So Chris, in the end, was the clean sheet important for you? I think, yeah, I think it was critical. I, 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 it's interesting. I didn't realise this, but we've still got the best defence in the league so far, haven't we? In that, really? We've only yeah, we've only conceded seven. Okay. Wow. And the next, the next best is Arsenal on eight. So actually, despite us feeling like we've got a slightly leaky defence, we've actually got the best in the league. But it's seven goals conceded in. 10 games obviously it's, it's fewer than one goal a game but we're used that when we're when we're at our most kind of dominant best that we are we, we've become the clean sheets merchant um but i do think there is a connection to what you're saying about about stones and rodri being in that double pivot there that them being back there creates far more protection whenever we concede goals of often the default finger that's pointed is at the keeper or the back four and often as we know most goals are can start to be conceded in the midfield uh, because and then when the transition and the and the, the occupying of space in that in that defensive mode isn't fully in and so i think that was really significant but just as you and george were talking then and and it's it's not and it's not a sort of downside, but the only thing that does worry me a little bit, the Rodri dilemma that we have 
is that when he's not, if he's not available on rare occasions, we don't have a, a suitable deputy to, to, to do it long term because Rodri is so he's so he's so superior that as Phillips found to, found to his detriment last season, you're not going to get a chance. And I do wonder if the same thing applies to Stones as well. We've got Kovacic and Nunes that have come in. But if there's long-term injuries to to Stones and Rodri, are are they apt deputies to be able to come in? And it, and it's that and it is that it's that dilemma as when you've got quality players like that, they will play all pretty much all the games. But if we lose them, we th- there's an imbalance in quality. That's that, that's a kind of side matter, but it did reinforce that to me. Stones mm. comes back in, pairing with Rodri, they're absolutely superb. They dominate. I mean, what is a poor midfield in United and we keep a clean sheet it's not a coincidence it just worries me in a long season where we'll continue to fight on most of the competitive fronts we're always playing dice with injury and yeah it's, it's just but, but I don't want that to overshadow what was a super victory over yeah. United I mean I, I sort of feel as though it's pretty clear that Rodri is somebody who is not massively injury prone um, mm. he, he obviously looks after himself and lives his life in the right way. And of course, you know, freak, freak things happen in football. Um, but you feel as though he's, he's pretty robust, but I do take your point that, that I almost feel it's like the KDB question, right? That I think mm. that th- down the years, we've always had this thing where whenever we'd lose KDB to an injury, your immediate sense is, well, you just can't replace him. And actually, players have, in the main, always stepped up. I wonder whether maybe the issue with Rodri, and George, I'll throw this over to you, is just that obviously Phillips hasn't worked out and Kovacic and Nunes, unless I'm mistaken, when Rodri was out, Stones was also out, so you didn't have the opportunity to see Kovacic in particular, not next to Stones, but having that sort of, having John Stones marauding in every section of the pitch, we haven't had the opportunity to see that yet. So maybe, do you think there's an opportunity? Well, do you think that if Stones is around and Rodri is out, then you can almost look at somebody like Kovacic and go, well, you can grow into the role of playing next to Stones? I think that's something that's definitely going to have to be tested um, throughout the season, even even if Rodri isn't absent through injury or suspension, even just a game we need to rest him um, because of the amount of football we hope to play this season. And I think... I think it like what you say is correct. I think we need a chance to see how Kovacic fares when he has that that pillar of John Stones next to him who can be the one who drops into defence, can be that big physical presence in in the in the pivot in the middle of the pitch. Because Kovacic is a brilliant player, gets stuck in, does a lot of good work off the ball, but he he just is it you know, Rodri and Stone's both six foot plus, mm. fairly 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 well built, and those battles you'll have against maybe strikers or other centre mids, Kovacic in those duels, maybe that's not where he's um at his strongest. So I think if he did have somebody like Stones next to him in those games, maybe maybe we wouldn't feel the absence of Rodri so so much and, and feel it so deeply throughout the team. And I think it's gonna be interesting to see 
maybe maybe it will be Kovacic, but maybe it'll be um, a, Re- a Rico Lewis, John Stones. We kind of both of those players have been the, true. Have been the people who sit next to Rodri and invert and sit in. But maybe at one point in the season we'll see. Actually, now Rico's becoming more of a of a centre midfield player as opposed to an inverted fullback. Maybe maybe that's a combination that needs to be tested as well in um in some of these Champions League um, matches we've got coming up next. Hopefully, once we've qualified and in those kind of more dead rubber matches, just to test it out and see if that could work going forward as well. Definitely. I mean, look, I think the thing with Rico is that. Guardiola's shown that he trusts him in games that matter in a big way. And yeah. so it that that almost doesn't feel like experimentation. It feels more like Pep having the trust of certain players. And and maybe that's what we're to go back to Chris, to just to go back to your point, maybe that's the key here is that there will come a point where Pep will trust a couple of lads to mm-hmm. step in and not recreate what Rodri does, but play in a different way, but offer the same protection. No, it, it's true. And I think um, I think George is right about, about Lewis. It, it's it's if, if Rodri was injured or rested and, the, and you saw, for example, if you saw stones in that in, in taking his position but with a on a double pivot with lewis would feel okay about that because mm. both players understand the system completely yes you would remove um the innate ability which Rodri had basically which is to never lose the ball and i think part of your point you were saying he doesn't get injured part of that is because the way he is his physical strength but the way he shields himself yeah when, when he's under a challenge with the ball so yeah i i, I think it's um it's there and 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 it's it's a sort of victim of of our own success really is when we've got such strong players it's also that thing about it's funny i've always said before that guardiola the way he plays transcends traditional positions on the pitch yeah. so it almost becomes futile to refer to to Lewis as a fullback. It's just like, yeah, Lewis is on the right hand side of the pitch during this game and he'll come in sometimes. It's almost like we've we've transcended some of those traditional positions of which someone like Lewis and Stones as well really represents it's, it's another it's another factor in, in in the impact that Guardiola has had on contemporary football, the way that those old positions don't really figure anymore. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I think I actually think that Rico Lewis is very similar to Rodri in so far as he never loses the football. Mm. Um, I, I imagine that if you went and looked it up for all the minutes he's played this season, he's probably got a passing, um, his pass completion percentage is probably 90% plus. And if that mm. is the case, well, that sort of tells you everything that you need to know about why he's trusted so much because he really can look after the football. Right. We've done a lot of United this week on a lot of pods and we've we've done a lot of piss taking <laughs> because you know have we? <laughs> yeah, because it's just so easy to it's so easy to do. They're such e- they make it so they make it so easy to be made fun of because they have just constantly in crisis. But I'm I'm curious about something because I think generally whenever United are in crisis the kind of the blame lands in one of three places. So, George, I'm going to start with you. This season in particular, who is who do you think is at fault for their problems? The manager, the Glazers, or the players? And you can only pick one, and that person has to shield most of the responsibility or that collection. Only pick one, whoosh. Um, I think if I'm going off purely this season... 
then I'm going to go with the players. And that is because there is a lot of there is a you know there's a lot of players who are overhyped because merely because they play for Manchester United in that team. But there's also players that you know had great seasons last year, have had great seasons in the past and like to think of themselves as world-class players. And if you like to think of yourself as a world-class player, you need to more often than not put in world-class performances and not just against the the bigger size this year, against, you know, opposition with less budget than them, less, uh, you know, less quality of calibre players. United have just looked inferior in so many games. The Copenhagen one, um, which they scraped through and won somehow, um, even though they should have, uh, you know, drawn with that missed penner by Henrik Larsson's son. And uh, even the Wolves match at the start of the season, you know, Wolves dominated them. They somehow scraped through. And uh, I just think the players, a lot of them have been so subpar this season. And also, when you examine the squad in detail, there's a lot of players who aren't that good and would not get into many of the top four sides. Chris? Okay, so um, oh, I'm going to respectfully refuse to answer the question, but I'm going to give a different. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to, di- I'm going to give a different answer, right? Because I think I, th- I, I think it's reductive just to point your finger at one thing. I'd I'd say the bigger picture, the Glazers are at fault, but it's but it but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna echo the narrative that like Gary Neville comes out with, etc. You look at United, look at United's business plan, or more specifically, look at United's business objective. From the Glazers' point of view, their objective is feed the debt. Because that's what they brought to the club and that's what they survive on. Feed the debt. The Glazers aren't particularly interested in winning titles all they're interested in is income to generate uh, income for the club to generate more income for for themselves by feeding the debt so and the share price and and the share share price price, yeah but that but that those two things are inextricably linked because the share price remains high you continue to feed the debt so the way you feed the debt is is to ensure that the income from every source continues to flow in from the fans to sponsorship and everything in between. So to do that, you've got to continue to maintain the the perception of success, of, of greatness, of history and dominance, and, re- and, and, and ensure that the sense of um, entitlement remains. What you don't need to do is to plan for the next 10 years. You need to, what they do is they plan for the next game. So there's no long-term thinking at all. And if you look at the managers that come in and the way the players behave, consciously or, or unconsciously, they're all they're all adhering to that business objective, feed the debts. Players like Anthony come in. They have no interest in the bigger picture. They're only interested, do I get 90 minutes in this game? A, a revolving door of managers come in. They don't look at the bigger picture. They just go, this is what I need for this season. Give me 200 million. And they're given it. And the Glazers know because they're just going to en- and maintain that that perception of greatness and moving forward. All those factors combined continue to feed the debt, but it means that they walk a fragile line that they can always fall down. So the blame or the responsibility lies with the Glazers. 
But I would say categorically, everybody has collective responsibility. Um, it's not. It's not ten. Ten Hag has been promoted to his own level of incompetence. It's not really his fault. The players are. Some of them are appalling in their attitude, and the Glazers don't give a shit. They don't care if they don't win. A, they're not won a Premier League title for ten years. They don't care mm. as long as they're feeding the debt. So all of them are contributing to this maelstrom of incompetence. Um, and and it's it's a great. I've said this before. It's a great um, um, uh, record. It's a great it's a great example for City to observe that once Guardiola goes, don't let that happen. Make sure you continue to to plan long term. So yeah, they're all responsible for what is an, an hilarious disaster. <laughs> it's very funny. So I, I think. Um, as much as you find my question reductive, which I'm not at all offended by, Chris, because um, I, I have a very thick skin, um, I think it's down to Ten Hag this season. I just think that he's, I, I think he's failed to manage a dressing room that he's constructed. I, I think a lot of other football clubs, if the manager spends what Ten Hag spends on players that he's coached before, and then he can't get a tune out of them. They're getting lambasted. The manager's getting absolutely hung out to dry daily in the media. Um, and I think he's pretty. He's been pretty well insulated. Um, I saw this morning Henry Winter tweeted that, you know, the problem at Man United isn't Ten Hag, it's the Glazers. And it's like, well, from my point of view, Eric Ten Hag is the coach. Forget about manager. He's the coach of the first team. And Man United don't have a footballing identity at all. Mm. And 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 I said this on another pod, Roberto De Zerbi has been at Brighton for less time than Eric Ten Hag has been at Man United. That's all you need to know from a coaching point of view. It means that as a coach, he's just not good enough and, and he's failing. So long may that continue. <laughs> I, I fear they're going to sack him, but yeah. Where will be? Where will the threshold point be? Where it's going to start to 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 be clear that Old Trafford, in its current state, is a graveyard for managers. I think it's there. I I actually think that um, this particular moment in time is a little bit of a tipping point in terms of the perception of United because. I'm not sure. United have got away with uh, burying a lot of footballers' careers in the last decade, mm. um, and they've got away with it. I'm not sure that they will continue to get away with it. I I'm quite surprised, even now, that agents would allow their talent, their top talents, to go to United because, you know, one big contract aside, it's properly a it's properly a graveyard for careers. So. Mm. I wonder if this is a tipping point and and my final word on it just in general is that you know I think one of the one of the distinctions that I would make between the modern city the modern Liverpool and and the modern United and actually Afro Arsenal in there as well is that I think if you look across the recruitment at City and at Liverpool and, and at Arsenal during what you would consider to be the building phase. So so the, the phase where you're getting your house in order and you're putting your roots down. They don't sign superstars. No. You don't sign players that there's a bidding war for and a hundred people want and they're like, you know, hot PR. You know, we 
they don't sign those players. They sign functional players that have a clear that that clearly fit into a footballing plan that they have. I just think United every year they just they tr they try and try to sign superstars. They're trying to go like, well, we think he's the best player in this position today, so we're going to go and buy him. And I just I don't think it can work like that. And and until they change that attitude, it will carry on. And to that, we we've spent we've had to we've had to endure years of people talking about a West Ham kind of player because you talked about West Ham kind of football for decades and a Tottenham kind of player and obviously a man you know I've heard Rio Ferdinand say it many times you know he's a real kind of Manchester United kind of player at this at this precise point in time if you were to say all right describe me what a Manchester United player is it would not be good reading at all and and any reference to what a Manchester United player is referring to something that happened in the 2000s and no later than that. The, the, mm. the identity of a Manchester United player. Because Gone. United, at their best under Ferguson, they were obnoxious, but they weren't entitled because he made them work hard. And, yep. and, and that's the, that's what defined his, his his reign and his dominance of the Premier League. Now players go to United, not think don't think they don't think they have to work hard, and they're not made to work hard. It's not a coincidence. You're right. Ten Hag, their lack of identity is his fault. I just don't think he's capable of it. Yeah. I, I think they I think they appointed somebody who has success in what is effectively a secondary European league in in Holland because by compa by comparison it is and 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 again he's he, he's been promoted to his own level of, of incompetence <laughs> I love that phrase yeah um I, I think George I think the big gamble that um they're making over Old Trafford is how long can we keep at the top purely with that badge and the name Manchester United being the big selling point. And it's worked in some aspects since Fergie because, you know, they've had Champions League football, won a, a couple of the, the minor trophies and they've kind of, they, they've not dropped out of the top echelon just yet. But I think we are right now at a point where that could easily go the other way. And when that happens, I don't know how... a you know, a club of that size does recover from that. And it's going to be very interesting <laughs> to see. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll definitely be a lot of fun. Um, right. Enough, enough about our friends from Salford. Um, Kevin De Bruyne did an interview in, uh, uh, in Belgium this week, and I'm just going to read out a couple of quotes um, that I'm interested in having a conversation around. So he's talking about the, the injury that, that he's had, and, and he said, I've never had such a serious injury. Uh, a hamstring operation isn't very common either. Uh, they've not given me a deadline for when I will be able to play football again. And then he goes on to say, this is an injury due to the succession of matches and risks I've taken throughout my, my, throughout my injury. I already have more than 700 matches on the counter. Actually, you can compare it to a car that once had to go to the garage for major maintenance. Um, George, how do you feel about, like, uh, Kev's a very honest guy in, in terms of, the way he speaks to the media. So when you when you read and saw the quotes, did it worry you? Like, what what what's your general takeaway from what he said? It does worry me a little bit. I have to I have to admit. Um, like you say, Kev is 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 a very um, you know forward, front footed, you know outspoken, blunt um, kind of communicator with the media and and what he puts out into the world and. 
I think if he's saying very, these very stark comments about about his injury and you know he's not shying away from the severity of it, I think we've kind of been as City fans maybe caught in a state of you know City we we're, we're, we're playing well winning matches we're near the top we're getting we're getting Kev back soon all will be well and um, and in actual fact the way he's speaking I don't know if we are going to get him back into into his best shape at this season maybe he'll come back towards the back end and hopefully but then he's got to build up match fitness and all these kind of things so it does set off a few alarms for me in terms of this season and also going forward because he's kind of got some reasoning out there already as if not reasoning maybe maybe an explanation from him saying I'm, I may not be the same player mm. and that's you know it's quite a it's quite a scary thing for a City fan after he's been, you know, uh, he's been our best player for eight years now, and um, well, one of our best players for eight years now. And it's, um, I just hope that, I just hope there's no rush at any point. Like, I think the the most idiotic decision City have made all season was him playing in the Burnley match, and then he matched the start of the season. We we just did not need him for those first few games of the season in any capacity. Mm. and I don't know how far that's set him back um, and if we just rested him and, and he properly recuperated after the Champions League then maybe it would be a different story I, I think, think um, I was, sorry I was going to say a couple of things a hamstring injury is a hamstring injury and, and if I mean, as we know if the tear's there it doesn't matter how long you rest the tear's there and if it's not dealt with scar tissue grows over it and it'll go again at some point so I, I understand what you're saying about we shouldn't have played him but he's still it was clear he still had the injury which had to be uh, dealt with it just means that he, he went into surgery probably quicker than he anticipated I guess we've just got to be careful we don't get too forlorn about it because as we know and footballers will attest to a long-term injury and rehabilitation from that injury is one of the most psychologically and emotionally demanding experiences of their life because because it's deeply frustrating and any rehabilitation and physio is a long... If you had any major um, injury like that, it's a long, slow, demanding process. You've got to have quite a strong character. It may just be that he was progressing really well and he's had a bit of a setback and we know that Kev wears his heart on his sleeve and he says what he's thinking and he may and his comments may just echo that that he he may not come back as quickly as he as he'd anticipated um and so i kind of the fact that they're not giving him a deadline i think is encouraging because i don't want to rush him back but i think a player goes through a goes through a journey when they're coming back from from an injury so i won't be too concerned about it if he with all these rumours about him coming back much earlier and being ready for December that would have worried me I'm thinking mm. hamstring injury we, we're doing okay without him when he comes back in he'll, he'll enhance our position but I, what, the one thing I, do, I don't want him to be rushed back particularly as he is older now and yeah. we know we can't that he's a slightly more delicate machine than he was five years ago yeah spot on I mean look I think actually in a funny way um, my Biggest takeaway was what he didn't say. Um, so he wasn't critical of the club. He wasn't critical of the medical staff. He, no. At no point does he say, I felt any pressure to come back. I think the reality is that uh, I've read this in a few places. Kevin De Bruyne is a fella who, if you put on the bench, you've got a problem because he doesn't like being on the bench. He hates it. He lives to play football. And so when we, even when we talk about him playing at Burnley, 
I imagine fundamentally if Kev's, because I I feel with Pep and with the medical staff, they don't take risks. They mm-hmm. absolutely don't take risks. And so I think that if he's on the pitch, it's because he's going, I want to play, I'm fine. So I think the fact that he's just talking from a very personal point of view about the number of games that he's played over the course of his career and the fact that he played through the injury at the end of last season to get to the end of the season, it, it sort of makes me feel as though it, he'll, he will be all right. I, I, I Personally, I feel Kev has another chapter left to write at City because I think that even if you lose a little bit of the athleticism, the guy's just got so much quality in his right foot mm-hmm. that, you know, you just you stand him in the centre of the park and he'll he'll get assists all day long. So I think uh, I think we'll be all right. And also I just, I, I feel as though City have... Uh, they're very good with their players in terms of looking after them, and they're very good at succession planning. Um, they tend, weirdly enough, not to rush into sex succession planning. They tend to wait for the right player. Um, and I'm sort of looking at Kev, and I sort of feel as though I imagine that City have got a plan. I imagine they've already got a list with two or three lads that they go, you know what, he's going to be the guy over the medium term that's going to replace mm-hmm. Kev, or at least replace the role that Kev currently plays in our team and Kev will be given a different role um, as he gets older. Right, from from one midfield hero at Manchester City to a midfield hero who is no longer at Manchester City. Um, I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but there's some interesting Ilke Gundogan quotes coming out of Barcelona. I think the first one that really caught my eye was after... Uh, after the Classico last weekend, he came out and said that he was surprised that the dressing room wasn't angry, um, which was like, oof, okay, that's a, that's a big thing to come out and say in the aftermath of a defeat because you're pretty much calling your teammates out. And then there was a lot of stories right across the Catalan press um, over the course of the week that he was really disappointed at the treatment he'd got from Barcelona since he arrived. Um, Chris... But such a seemingly smart guy. Are you surprised that he's surprised? It's odd, isn't it? Did he say, did he? I'd, I saw the interview post Classico, but I've not seen the interview about him saying his, his disappointment treatment by the club. Did he go into any detail about that? So, it, I've, uh, from what I can tell, it's an off the record briefing. So, it's not like he sat down and, and given an interview, but I think that a couple of the Barcelona daily sports newspapers carried the same story and it hasn't been disputed by Gundogan or by Barcelona themselves um and in that story what it says is that he hasn't him he feels that the club haven't supported him and his wife since they moved to Barcelona they've given them no help in settling in the city no help in finding accommodation basically very little player care Right. Okay. I mean, it's funny because I st- I still see Gundo as a city player who just happens to be wearing a Barcelona shirt yeah, at the minute. I understand what you, know, you mean. A, you know, it, 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 
what I found out about it, I, I was very, I was very conflicted about with when, Gund, when Gundogan left because I understood that he thought he'd reached an absolute kind of peak in his City career, and he, this, this was the player now who'd spent two or three seasons under Pep, not knowing whether he was going to be in the first team or not. So, to suddenly becoming one of five or six players who was essential, you had on the pitch in, in the majority of games, and he lifted all three trophies of our treble as captain. So was, I could understand why he's thinking, right, I'm going to draw and close to this chapter now but it's just usually when a player of his age have achieved so much when they want a different experience it's usually like a cultural different experience and they know they're probably going to take a couple of steps down in terms of quality of that club he chose to go to Barcelona because if you're a younger player the opportunity of Barcelona generally is a great opportunity but as we know they're they're in a much more wretched state at the at the minute so it felt like he was sort of between a rock and a hard places why do you want to leave city they're not offering you more than one year but why do you want to go to barcelona where even though it's like this this cultural icon in football you know they're in a terrible state so i i was kind of unsure of what his motivations were did he want to go and have more success on the European stage. We probably don't, you don't want to go to Barca right now because you may get it in the league, but you won't get it on, on a wider level. So when he came out and said about disappointed, that for me, because he's expecting what he gets in the city changing room and he, and he didn't get that. So I think that's probably a quite a cultural shock for him. But yeah, it, it, it's it's. I feel like he's slightly been dazzled by the by the, the bright lights of Barcelona, but not done enough investigation to say what position are this club in now? What is the infrastructure like, and can they give me as much as I'm prepared to give them? And we're clearly seeing that 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 that, that they're not, and 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 it's a bit of a kind of delicate journey for him and his family at the minute. Mm. George, you got any sympathy for Gundo? Sympathy, pr- probably, probably not. I think, mm. like you say, he he is a very intelligent person and very, very um, level-headed. And I think what it shows is kind of the power of um, the almost the power of who you are, what you idolize as a child, and. You know, everybody growing up of Gundo around Gundo's age, younger and older, um, would have grown up with this. The you know, seeing these great Barcelona teams and the mystique and the dominance and the beautiful football and um, everybody seemingly very happy while playing there. And like you say, that has changed in recent years. And we and every, every anybody who's into football now knows, even if you're not working in the game you know the state of barcelona and and what that club is doing and and where they're going and and their financial stresses and all of that and i think i think what if you know all of that why why would you go there and expect it to be the same as it's been at manchester city a club who were in their most refined state possibly that they've ever been in and uh, the top of the game both on and off the field and I think it's yeah the, the these cl- again what I was saying about earlier Barcelona are kind of doing what United are in a sense having more success but how long can this badge and the name FC Barcelona carry us and attract players to us and players are still going there 
but I think they're finding out when when they are there. This isn't the this isn't the the Barcelona of um, of Luis Enrique or Pep Guardiola or Valanova or or Cruyff or any of these. This is uh, even if, with Xavi as manager, this is a very different club and. And when you're there, you, I don't think it's going to be as romantic as maybe you once thought it was when you uh, signed the contract. Absolutely. I mean, I, I personally, I've got no sympathy for him. I think you got to be <laughs> you got to be pretty blind to not see the, the the absolute state that Barcelona were in. And I think actually, more importantly than that, I feel as though the way Barcelona have conducted themselves in the last couple of years in terms of the way that they've dealt with players is pretty disgraceful and pretty disgusting. Um, and so on the basis of that, somebody like Gundo, who was at City and City wanted to keep him choosing to go to Barcelona, which I'm absolutely fine with because he, he owes City absolutely nothing. But once you've gone there, if it goes tits up, well, sorry, mate, but there's not a lot we can yeah. do about that. It, it, but look exactly. at... But, Sorry, just look at the shift because but when did Barcelona become the retirement home for big players like Sergio? Yeah, like yeah, like yeah, Gundo. Yeah, yeah. Spot on. It's like when did that happen? Can't they see the irony in in that? That it's like imagine if we if we attracted a number of once big name players that like if Ronaldo came to us when we were kind of dilly dallying around Harry Kane. It's not. It's not because he's a United player, ex-United player. I'd be concerned. It's more like when. Since when did we become a retirement home for yeah. these players? And you look at Barca, and, and it's not worked for them, particularly with, with Sergio. You know, but Gundo should still be here. Mm. I believe I that now mean. more than ever. He, he should still be here, and and we shouldn't have let him go. Um, yeah, and, but I, I do know what but, you mean, Chris. But I don't fully agree because I do think that you. I think one of the things that City have have been really good at in in the modern era is knowing when it's time to move on yeah but what's the difference between him and walker walker wanted to go we offered him two years he stayed honestly the club the club always says if a player doesn't want to stay we'll let them go walker said he wants to go to bayern what changed yeah i mean i again i i completely take your point and uh, i wish gundo had stayed but I am also very okay with taking the risk of going, okay, this player is now 32, 33, 34. It's time for us to think about the medium term and the long term. Of course, of course. It's just, you know how you, you know how you, 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 you think that Kev will have another chapter. Yeah. I thought last season we mm. were seeing the very best of Gundogan. And, and 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 I thought he can do this for another two seasons, like we're getting the best from Walker. He can do it for another two seasons, and yep. I just think it's slightly short sighted that we didn't say give him two years and, he's, mm. and he'll stay happy. Yeah. Right, gentlemen. Before we discuss our game against Bournemouth, this is Mister Howard Hock, Howard Hocking, Howie Hocking, Howie Hock. <laughs> you know what I mean? The legend, Mister Howard Hocking, talking to Simon from Talking Cherries. I'm delighted to be joined by Simon from Talking Cherries. Uh, good evening, Simon. Uh, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Howard. How are you? Not bad, not bad at all. I can hear the rain bouncing off the windows. Is it a lot worse down there? Have you you got the worst of the storm this week? Or? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a lot worse than 
parts further north, but it could have still been worse than it was, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, it's autumn now, so <laughs> we're used to it, aren't we? Uh, shall we talk all things Bournemouth then? I'm sure you'd love we, to. We, we will try, yes. <laughs> we will try. Uh, I get. I always, I always do a very vague opening question. Uh, oh, f- first of all, thanks again for coming. I appreciate it. We're talking on Thursday night, and appreciate people taking the time out. So, uh, my vague opening question is, <laughs> as I always have one: How are you feeling about the club right now? I've put in the notes that it's been a tough season. That you got your first win last week. Is it fair to say that, that it's been a tough season for Bournemouth fans? Um, I don't think it's as straightforward as that. I mean, mm. if we look at things just on the pitch, first things first, we had the second hardest start to the season, I think, after Newcastle, statistically. So if we compare points from the games we've played so far in comparison to last season, for example, we're actually not doing too bad. Yeah. And I think Sometimes your fixture list has a direct impact on what your points per game might actually be. So if we were to look at that, we're probably only three points behind where we might like to be. And I think the only result that really is a bit of a shock was losing at home to Wolves. Well, you've got, I mean, you've got us, City at the weekend, you've got Newcastle after that, but then you've got, you know, and Aston Villa are looking good. You've got Sheffield United, Crystal Palace, haven't you? Luton Town and Nottingham Forest, Fulham. It, there's a lot more winnable games, aren't there, coming up in uh, the end of uh, well, in what's left of this year? Yeah, and I think most fans have had a bit of patience um, with the start. I think yeah. most of the games, because we're changing into a whole new system in comparison to where we were before, it's not easy for players to pick up on that, especially when we've had injuries in key positions as well. So we, we may have lost our patience a little bit after the Arsenal performance and then the Wolves performance and the Everton performance. But prior to that, there were indications that things were moving in the right direction. And then the last couple of performances, the same things happened again, both you know the Burnley win and also the performance last night against Liverpool. Let's talk about that Liverpool one. Obviously, you Disappointed to be out of the Carabao. Did uh, were a lot of changes made for this game? Were you quietly optimistic that you could have a, a bash up winning a trophy this season? Or, or yeah. I, I've not seen the highlights. <laughs> I mean, I've not watched. I was I was busy watching United lose at home to Newcastle, so I know no details of the game. Obviously, well, disappointed to lose. But what was what was the game like, and how was the performance? Yeah, it's all right. You know, it's progressing. And I think when we got back to 1-1, we had chances to go ahead and perhaps go on and win the game. But then, mm. you know, just a worldly goal, which you can sometimes get when you're playing clubs like Liverpool for the New Year's. Um, but we were in the match and we were competitive. And I think that's all we're looking for. And I think some patterns of play were great. So everything's moving in the right direction. I think we've also moved players around into certain positions. We've tried different things out. We're feeling positive about how it's slowly coming together. But, you know, mm. it was good last night. It wasn't too bad. Can I, can I talk about how we get to the point, uh, ownership managers all that? Uh, Gary O'Neill, I had Wolves fan on, berating him big time uh, a few weeks ago before they went and before he went and outfoxed Pep and Wolves beat City. So how how hard done to was he to lose his job after keeping up last season? 
I think first things first, we have to be very thankful, and most Bournemouth fans are to Gary and how he managed to get the togetherness of the team together and help us stay up last year. There's no denying that we owe him a gratitude for that. Mm. However, many of the performances that you've watched throughout the whole season, they weren't the kind of matches that many fans like to watch. The quality of the football wasn't what we're kind of used to, and it's not like we've been spoiled. I mean, we did have Eddie Howe, and look what he's doing now. So, yeah. you know, we can miss something that is that good. So, we're, I don't want to speak on behalf of every single fan, but I think most were respectful to him that he did that good job, but also understood having watched the team play that this group of players had more about them. I think it's a tough decision as much as it was for the new owners. I think most fans would say it was the right one, even though we're not where we want to be now just yet. Yeah. You're talking to your owners, Bill Foley, uh, you've got an American owner, Texan, I think. Uh, obviously, got some sports franchises in, in America. Apparently, looking at a minority stake in Hibs as well in Scotland at the moment, and FC Lorient, I think, in France. Uh, I think it was it December he took over last year with the odd uh, celebrity backer. How, how has it been yeah. with him as owner? Is he saying the right things and doing the right things that makes you confident for the future? Yeah, I think obviously what you have with our club is that we are a minnow in comparison yeah. to most other clubs in the Premier League and traditionally not a big club at all. And there's many things that we don't have that we should have from a facilities perspective. So when it comes to an investable proposition and the various things that need to be built, of which last will be a new ground, which, you know, is in the planning as we speak. There's various options that Bill and his team have been looking at from a design perspective. But the training facilities that are being built are moving really fast. You know, they'll, they'll be ready in the not-too-far distant future, and they're pretty yeah. impressive. So getting our youth system up to the right category to make sure we keep some of the players that have come through our system over the years but have always moved on to them lot down the road at Southampton or elsewhere because of the quality of their youth setup and training facilities. So those investments, all that money's being put in the right place. We spent a lot of money in the team. There are some queries as to whether the people that chose the players we bought chose wisely, but that wasn't on Bill. So for Bill, he's come. He's got Michael B. Jordan and various others investing in his back pocket. So we're very hopeful for the medium to long-term progression of the club. And I think at the end of the day, when we come from where we have in such a short period of time, hmm. we're kind of grateful, even if, Another American owner in the Premier League does personally make me a little worry uh, on certain levels from time to time. Yeah, well, I think eventually every club in the Premier League will have an American owner. That's the way it's going, so they get there in the end. Uh, so your new manager, newish, not that new now, right? You can uh, correct me for my appalling pronunciation. Uh, Andoni Iraola, I'm even close. Andy. Do, I've yeah. got there. Lucky. He's Basque, I think, is he not? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've put, I hate this phrase. I really hate this phrase. I've actually apologised for you in the notes for using it. Hipster choice. And the reason I wrote this, because a lot of articles came out when he was, when, you know, in the, the athletic and places like that about uh, his brand of football. And I looked at his CV and thought, I don't actually know this guy at all. And there's not that big a CV. 
what was the feeling again obviously you don't speak you know <laughs> i know you can't uh, speak for the entire fan base but what was the general feeling when he was he was uh, announced as manager was it more a case of well let's wait and find out and it was, should be an interesting ride along the way or he quite excited about the articles that spoke about the way he his philosophy about football well, kind of a bit of everything. I think the first mm. answer to the question is, if you get rid of Gary O'Neill, which obviously happened, and mm. you look for a replacement, what is the objective of the club? You know, is it going to be, let's just try and survive, a la what Graham Sooness just seems to say all the time, you know, Bournemouth should almost stay in their box and just try and survive every year. But we don't want to do that. And that's what the new owners want to try and achieve and to probably have more of a Brighton progressive model or what Fulham have yeah. done over recent seasons. You know, you get some of these clubs that have moved up the league by specific styles or brands of football. So when you want to move up the league in the medium to long term, you have a pot of managers that may or may not be available that could be in the pedigree, like what's happened with Deserby. Yeah, And when you look at that kind of pedigree, history, talent and potential, Iriola was in that pot. So it makes complete sense to give him a go and to see if he can bring his brand of football. Obviously, he was a he's not a Bielsa ball trainee. That's the wrong way to put it. But he comes from the same kind of bracket and line of coaches. I think it's the right choice to give us the chances to move up because all the investment that's being put in, you need someone that can coach a different brand of football that's progressive and enjoyable to watch. And we're starting to slowly see it. Well, that's my next question. You segued away very nicely. Thank forget you. The, forget the results. <laughs> You're a pro. You've done, you've done this before. Uh, the playing style, is it completely different to what he had last season? Do you see his philosophy slowly beginning to impose itself on this team and the performances? Yeah, we do. And I think every game, I think I inferred earlier, every game up until Arsenal, Wolves, Everton, that kind of three games there, there were progressive things you could see in every game where you thought, well, that's pretty cool. That's very interesting. I like this, but I don't like that. And then he changed things around, like, for example, playing Phil Billing a bit further forward and seeing what he can do there like he did last season. So that was good to see. So it's coming and the intensity is improving. The amount of touches in the opposition box is improving. The shots on target is improving. So mm. when all the data is reviewed, it's very clear that things are changing. It can be a bit frustrating from time to time to watch it, but he's been a bit hamstrung by some injuries. He hasn't had all the players available that he'd like to ideally have to make that team tick how he'd like it to. But I think the biggest and most exciting thing that's happened in the last couple of games is Alex Scott being fit and coming into the side because uh, many fans feel like he's the next Jack Grealish. Well, I'm glad you mentioned You've done it again. I've pe- I haven't put it in the notes, but I've written on a piece of scrap of paper here, Alex Scott. So City played Bristol City at Bristol. Uh, I don't yep. know. Co- COVID has, has completely uh, warped my sense of time. I guess it was pre-COVID and he stood out by a country mile in their team. He was a very exciting player. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you must be excited to have him in the team as well. You've not seen 
enough of him yet, but what you've seen must be, yeah, he is quite a talent, is he not? Yes, and he gives you um, quite unique attributes, which is why he had such a big price tag on his head and why he could be, you know, a 70 to 80 million player in the not too distant future because there's not many players like him that can do what he does. And if he stays fit and does it well, he's incredibly exciting to watch. You know, this is the kind of player that Iriola needs in his team for it to be able to deliver what he ultimately wants. Of course, it takes more than one player to deliver the action and progressive pressing kind of football that he's looking for, but we're all very excited. And and the first two performances he's put in, even though it's not been necessarily 90 minutes each time, he gives us something to hold on to that we haven't had for a long time in terms of that kind of talent in the midfield. Uh, Well, I remember just snippets from that game and I remember him he's you know he's dangerous on the edge of our box on City's box but has he been a defensive midfielder has he been played in that position at Bournemouth or was he all, all, it's quite all over the place type player it's yeah. quite interesting to watch and I think purely because of you know obviously the injury to Tyler Adams who was the you know the purchase to yeah. the sitting midfielder and then Lewis Cook took that position and has done very well. And then, of course, he, you know, had a rush of blood to the head and put his head on someone else's head. And obviously, is banned for a few games. So I think in the short term, Alex Scott and Phil Billing and those kind of players are maybe rotating a bit in what they're doing. So he's kind of holding that defensive position, but he doesn't stay there. Yeah. Anyway, last week. Bit nervy at the end. Uh, Vincent Company not very happy, but it must be huge relief to get the first win last weekend and take a bit of pressure off. Absolutely, um, it was a long time coming, and there were moments when we wondered whether it was going to come at all. So there's been a lot of nervousness around, but I think the belief from the fans and also the players and the build-up to that game and what they delivered on the pitch that day. Yes, of course, there was that VAR nonsense at the end is the best way I can describe it but I think on balance of play we deserve that victory and it was needed for all sorts of reasons you know momentum belief everything that we want to happen with this new manager yeah just was the right time for it and yeah we definitely needed it so to Saturday you have any optimism of getting a result the only optimism I have is based on Iriola's history of being a giant killer as a manager and as a coach because he's done it many, many times. So yeah. he's not afraid of beating big boys because he's beaten Real Madrid as a coach, beaten Barcelona as a coach and all this, the rest of it. A, but I, that's Real Vallecano, wasn't he? So he got them promoted and finished, I don't know, 11th, 12th first yeah. in the two seasons there. Yeah, and as you say, he's uh, blooded some noses whilst he was in Spain, so... Yeah, so he, he knows how to do it, but uh, um, I wonder whether this is a little bit too soon based on our uh, evolution to Iriola Ball, if I can call it that. So as much as I'd love there to be an opportunity, I feel like I see this every time we play you. I'm kind of realistic. You know, could, could we turn up and Iriola Ball just clicks and we give Man City a bloody nose? I'd love to believe that, Howard, but I can't see it happening. You can't. Do you take any credence in past history? Because obviously your record against City is terrible. But, you know, obviously, 
we've got far bigger resources than uh, we're expected to win a lot of the matches. So does it matter going into this, what's happened in the past, or is it a clean slate for you? Do you, do you always look at past history when you look at games like this? Not really. I think you just take, when you play big boys, yeah. it's whatever it is on the day and what you're served up against. So I think it's just here comes Man City again. If we're going to do anything, let's hope we don't lose by a hatful because goal difference is always relevant if you're in a situation as we are at the moment near the bottom of the table. But at the end of the day, we've never beaten Man City. There's always a first day, so why can't mm. it be away this time? So how were you set up then? Uh, very defensive because, let's be honest, not City, but uh, any big team hates hates low blocks anyway and the threat of a counter-attack is that something both capable of yeah I, th- I think when it comes to the game on Saturday is nothing will change with Iriola he will stick to his 4-2-3-1 right. um, we may we may see some changes in personnel and you might obviously see that go into a low block of a 4-5-1 but there will be pace on the counter. And I can imagine him probably using Semenyo and maybe Tavernier to offer that counter-attacking option. So they definitely have it. And Solanke is one... I think at the time he signed him, I didn't get it or the fee. Is he finally beginning to show promise and justify that fee? Yeah, I think, you know, the fee for Solanke at the time can be viewed as being expensive but if you think how long he's spent at the club now and his commitment and the goals he scored and most importantly his effort because he never stops you know he's not what you would call a traditional number nine that just puts the ball in the back of the net and that's mm. pretty much it his all-round play and his ability to link up between all players on the pitch you know sometimes it's an issue that he's too isolated and we don't have enough players around him but in terms of his fee and the value that he's given to us you can't really complain at all. I have no complaints about Dom. He'll always put the effort in. Where's yeah. the start on his sleeve and gives it 100%? And that's what you, what you really want from your top striker. Finally, star-wise, what, how do you think he's going to press? Will he, be, <laughs> will he take the risk of pressing high and aggressively? Or do you think this is not a sort of game where both want to press high up the pitch oh it's a tough call that one um i think what's interesting watching man city at the moment is they're not the fastest team they're mm. just very good at what they do and obviously in Iriola's interview today he was basically saying pick your poison you know which thing that man city have are you going to defend against because if you defend against one of them you might be open to another so i don't know which one he's going to try but i can't see us leaving big gaps behind yeah now what might happen is will lloyd kelly go back to being a centre-back as opposed to where he played against Burnley, he played left-back. I think he probably will go back into left-back because his covering pace is probably one of the quickest in the league, which is obviously why teams like Milan and Juventus and Newcastle and everyone want him in January because he's in the last year of his contract. So he's got things to prove. So we could hold a high line, but I don't think we would stick to it. I think it 
might be a bit fluid. Yeah. Right. Well, finally, I always ask this. Go your head or your heart. It's up to you. Score prediction. We're going to win 3-2, Howard. <laughs> Brilliant. That's what I like to hear. Well, I say I like to hear. I don't want it to come <laughs> true, but I like to hear the optimism. So I'm, I'm going to I'm, go with the element of, like, this is the one. This is where Iriola, everyone starts to take him seriously, and we're going to beat City for the first time. I've got to do it, because normally I'm so pragmatic when I speak to you, Howard, and most of the time I've got it right from pragmatism. So let's do something different this time, my friend. Yeah. You could be the new... Crystal Palace who come here and win on a regular basis. So. Absolutely. Why not? Yeah. There's always one team like that. So why not indeed? Uh, well, I'm not. You won't have listened to every fire show. I'm absolutely negative and very cautious with my predictions. When opposition fans are calling, oh, we'll lose in 6 0, I'm going 1 0. But. I've got some. I've got my mojo back after that. Uh, I mean, I've got n- no reason to complain as a City fan, obviously. But we haven't been perfect this season. Well, yeah, I don't expect us to be either. Uh, and United was so bad last week. It's hard to say if we were the, actually that brilliant. But I have got my mojo back a bit after the United game. So I am, and we've got a rare clean sheet. So I'm going to be really optimistic as well and go for three 0 City. So we shall Fair see. Enough. But it's just nice to play on a Saturday afternoon again. We've had loads of Saturday 3pms and it's not going to last. And uh, yeah, I I like playing at that time. So looking forward to a good uh, afternoon of the football. So Simon, time has defeated us. Thank you very much for taking the time out on a rainy, cold, wet Thursday evening. I really appreciate it. Uh, Fascinating stuff. Yeah, thank you very much. Alrighty, speak to you soon. All the best. Yeah, speak to you soon. And as always, after this weekend, all the best with the rest of the season. And we will now go back to the panel. That was Howard chatting to Simon. And now we, gentlemen, turn our attention to our game against Bournemouth tomorrow. Another Saturday, three o'clock kickoff. We've been blessed so far this season feel like the overwhelmingly vast majority of games we played have been Saturday three o'clock kickoffs. Um, so, George, I'm going to start with you. Cherries have got one win, three draws, six defeats, and have scored less goals than Luton. It's a loaded question, but will they stay up? I think that they are... I, I'm worried that the, the, the three teams that are going to go down are the three teams that came up. Mm. Um, and which I don't like to say, obviously, with Vinny Company being at the helm of Burnley. Um, but I do think that if one of them were to, to survive, it would be at Bournemouth's cost. And I think Bournemouth would be the team, the other team to fill that. I think, I think there's already a slight points gap being created near the bottom, um, between those bottom four and yeah. then the rest of the teams. You know, teams that maybe people thought were going to be dragged down into it. Um, Everton's of Forest, they've managed to pick up um, points with some big wins. Uh, but those four teams are in real danger at the moment. And I can't I can't see where the, where the change is going to come for, for Bournemouth at the moment. Um, I, yeah, I, I can't see it unless maybe they they decide to do a, a managerial change. But their the last minute managerial change going a second Gary O'Neill and going to Iriola is is not worked. So who's to say it would work again? Mm. Uh, it's interesting that you say that Iriola came with a really big reputation. So the kind of you know your Sidlows, the the Spanish football writers 
were raving about this guy and going like, you know, Bournemouth have got a real coach here. Um, yeah. Chris, just to throw this over to you, have you seen anything in their games that, that points to why he came with such a big reputation? Not yet. It's very early days, isn't it? And it's yeah. kind of slightly unfair to judge him on 10 league. Well, I think he's had three cup games and, 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 and 10 league games. I think what I'm more perplexed about is why he came with such a big reputation. Because I was I, I, I was having a look at his figures this morning. So he came for Real and, and, and he was there for three seasons. But in his time there, he had a win rate of 39%. So he, he, he basically won just four more games than he lost. An overall goal difference of plus six. So I don't quite know why he had such a reputation. I think part of it was because obviously he was a very he was a very prominent player. He played for Athletic Bilbao for about eleven years. You know, he was one of those stalwarts of La Liga. And I think that people enjoyed the fact that he made that quick transition. Basically he went he went I think two years between finishing in the MLS to then taking up his first managerial position. So they probably I think his reputation is a sense of optimism and encouragement from the Spanish media that they want this guy to succeed because he appears to be one of the good guys. But I don't think his reputation that he's got is necessarily warranted. Um, at the same time, it, it, he knows he's coming into a league with a team who have been struggling. Um, and he knows he needs to do some quick fixes. Um, and at the minute, that isn't happening. So, um, you know, whether it's relegation fodder, I don't know. But but I think at the minute, he... he there's a mediocrity about about them and about the way he is managing them. That might shift over the next th- three months, but I certainly think it, that his reputation is a bit of a fable and it was mm. media generated. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think in the end that the three teams that came up will go back down. I think they'll be safe. And I'm actually a little bit more, I just said this on the Premier League pod that we did, that I'm I'm quite interested to see Iriola's team next season if they stay mm. up and I think that that will really give me an idea as to whether the reputation was warranted um, or whether it was just a little bit of the hype that you know follows some young coaches around. Pochettino struggled at Southampton first of all. Yes he did but you know, I, I, I think the, what, what I'm interested in is identity. I, I'm coming around to this idea that coaches that fail at clubs but fail with a clear identity will probably go on and have a career and then the coaches who fail at a club without showing any identity on the pitch those are the ones who will not have a career yeah fair shout out George what sort of game do you expect tomorrow I I think they will be front footed I think what we've seen from them so far is they 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 like to counter press. They like to to try and stop people playing through the middle of the pitch. Um, they're very positive in the way in the Iriola's got them lined up in a very positive manner. Um, maybe to the detriment sometimes with the with the players he's he's got at his, uh, at his disposal. But I think they'll try and squash Rodri, and I think they'll try and be physical with Haaland I think they'll see those two as the two danger points and it's just a case of can they can they contain Rodri all match and and I'm betting that they probably will not be able to do that given how good he is but I think that will be their way to try and disrupt us and our playing and him being that conductor in the middle of the pitch for us Mm. Do you expect a little bit of 
Pep rotation roulette, George? Like, from a team selection point of view, bearing in mind that we've got a Champions League game midweek, um, can you see a few of the bench players from last weekend coming in? I think I think maybe at most we'll see two two changes. Um, I think Doku maybe will come back into the team, and then possibly a change at the back, whether that be Ake or Akanji. Like you say, I think there's going to be some even more rotation um, in the week against young boys. So I think he won't tweak it too much for this for this Premier League match. Maybe maybe a couple at most, but I think he'll have liked the rhythm that we got into, in, especially in that second half against United. And I don't think he, when he finds when Guardiola tends to find you know nice rhythms and and uh, his team are playing exactly how he wants, he he doesn't like to shift it too much. I think we'll see the bigger shift um, on Wednesday. Mm. Chris, how do you feel in terms of, I kind of agree with George that you, every season you feel as though Guardiola goes through a little bit of an experimentation phase and then he, there's always a moment where you begin to see, all right, okay, these are, this is more or less the 11 that he wants uh, as often as he can have. Um, are we pretty much getting close to that now? Uh, yeah, I, which, which I, I think is good, but I think, What's more critical is that the ones who are on the bench who deputise is that they are genuine deputies who can come in and do a job. But I think we can start to see with one or two rotations in there, you know, Doku, Grealish, Bernardo, Foden. I think we're starting to see that eleven starting to um, um, starting to to, to 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 emerge. I do wonder whether he, how much he'll rotate because I think the opposite. I think Bournemouth are going to play dead because I'm looking at their fixtures now. And between now and Christmas, they they their fixtures include three of their potential relegation rivals in Sheffield United, Ball, uh, Luton Town, and Forest. And I think when you go into those six pointers at this stage of the season, you need to have a bit of a cushion in case you lose them. And Bournemouth, um, they've got quite they've got I think three draws, so so they know how, they know how to do a draw. And I think against us and against Newcastle next week, they'll just they'll they'll play dead. They'll sit back and they'll hope to try and sneak a point if they can. So effectively, in terms of selection tomorrow, I want the team that are best set up to be able to unlock the door that I think Bournemouth will never to present to us, which I think I think that's why I think Grealish might might start for this one over Docker because I think he's the right kind of player for it. I'd be surprised if Bournemouth come out on the front foot. If they do, I think they will regret it hugely. I don't think is the kind of coach who's not going to come out front foot. I think that he he wants to live by the sword and die by the sword. So I I sort of agree with George. I think that they'll try and counter press us whenever they can. They'll try and push the the defensive line up, and yeah, hopefully they'll they'll get eaten alive for for being that naive. Or I mean, you know, I think I do think that there is. It's almost a conversation for another day, but I do think that there's an existential question about what you do if you have a philosophy like that and then you have to come and play a team like City. What does it tell your players if you stick to your philosophy and what does it tell your players if you tell them, no, no, we're going to completely uh, change it up today. Um, So I I deliberately didn't talk about this in the Derby chat because I want to chat about it now. Uh, I thought Grealish's performance in the derby was amazing 
And I felt as though having Bernardo and, and having Guardiola on that side creating space for him and having Man United's manager being naive as hell really allowed him to express himself in a moment where I think it probably did him the world of good. Um, but my question is, has Doku's emergence actually helped in so far as I sort of look at Ortega's arrival and that Ortega's arrival for me has coincided with Edison slowly playing the best football that he's played for Man City. And I can't help but feel that having a guy breathing down your neck has helped him. Uh, George, I'll start with you. Do you think Doku's emergence is going to help Grealish? I, I think it can only benefit him. I think having two quality options um, competing with, especially if they're players with the right mindsets is only can only be beneficial for the team and will push they'll both push, push each other on and and it means that you that you can't just have oh I'm, I'm not really feeling it today and uh, half-heartedness you have to be on it at all times because you know you've got a manager in Pep who who is who can be cutthroat and no matter who he likes and his favourites and stuff, he he will always go with the team that he feels um, will give him the best chance to win the game. And so I think if if you've got a competition, I think it raises your level. And I think, with, like you say, we've seen it with Ortega and um, and Edison. Edison in 2023 has been maybe one of his, one of his best seasons in a City shirt. Um, not just his distribution, which has always been class, but his shot-stopping ability because he knows that he there is a deputy there who is who's pretty good at distribution. Maybe not on his level, but probably better than most keepers. But he's also a terrific shot stopper, and I think Grealish has that now. He knows there's a young kid who's very hungry, very talented, and actually has has um, digested Guardiola's principles very quickly. Um, maybe quicker than Grealish himself did, and I think it will drive Grealish on. And I think we've seen that a bit of more, a bit of anger, a bit of um, bit more drive from him, a bit more directness that we've all been kind of crying out for because we know it's there. We've seen it in moments, and him, you know, running at plays, dropping the shoulder. It's it's been a real, um, it's been really great to see. And I echo what you said. I thought he was absolutely terrific against United. Chris, would you concur with the United performance assessment? Yeah, I thought he was. It was a delight because I think the criticism of Grealish in the context of Doku's joining the club is is nonsense because it, it, it's a short sighted approach to football. They're two very different players. So my question would be: So if it, Aysan, if you think Bournemouth are going to play in the front four, who do you play, Doku or Grealish? I'd play them both. Genuinely, I'd play them both. I'd play one right, one left, and I'd rest one of Alvarez or Foden. Um, but because... I see, I, why, 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 why would you sacrifice Alvarez or, or Foden for the sake of playing them both? Because I think that we got a game in midweek. Because I think that that's a collection of players: Grealish, Foden, Alvarez, Doku, who, in my opinion all need to feel important this season because I think they all have really big roles to play. And it's, so it's not it's not a clear footballing decision for me. Right. It's actually yeah. one about that idea. You know, when you've got like, so you've got six options, right? But you've only got five spots there, but all six are good enough. You can't play the same five every week and leave the same fella out every week because eventually that fella's going to go, but I'm as good as them. And so to keep that balance, and also look, firstly, 
I, I don't, I, you can't jack, drop Jack after the performance that he put in at Old Trafford. Impossible to do. Impossible. So then the real question is, do you play Doku or don't you play him? And my gut instinct would be to keep his rhythm, to keep his momentum, I'd bring him in and pull one of Phil or Alvarez out. Yeah, I mean, I'd I play Doku against Young Boys. Um because I just think he's going to have more joy. The, the thing is, is we know what Jack we know what we know what Jack came as an Aston Villa player. He basically came as Roy the Rovers, and we know what Guardiola's turned him into. If you want control, if you want re- retention of the ball, okay, you play Jack. And and if you're playing, and because if you're playing a, a team that is that is low block, Jack holds the ball. He draws the defenders out. People get behind, or he draws a foul as well. For me, it's not an either or with them. Um, and, and and I think you know, and I I I I think maybe that football football's mentalities, particularly at City, is slightly changed. Yes, they want competition, but I'm sure Grealish is delighted that Doku's come in because mm. he's thinking we've now got one more tool in in the box yeah. that can further us onto our goals um, this season. Um, and so I think that's how the players see each other more than competing. Edison's development, yes, I'm sure that the that, that Ortega's kind of you know skill set and prowess when he plays is there. But also I think Edison's also identified what his weak spots were and it's coaching. He's worked on it. He's now a far superior sh- uh, shot stopper than he was a season ago. That's what we saw last season, what what improved um, massively. I I'd, I want Grealish to play tomorrow because I agree with you, Aiton. I think he's got a momentum there. He's, he, he had a he had a bad dead leg injury, and he is a bit of a confidence player as well. So I want him to play, but I don't really want to see Doku on the right. So I'd rather I'd rather have Bernardo on the right and then save Doku for for the Champions League game where we can pretty much confirm our our progression to, to the knockout stages. You've convinced me. Okay. <laughs> I'm so think, fickle. Yeah. You've convinced me. Go on, George. I think, I think one of the, I think one of the big factors as well. I, I think what's important when you have two players in a spot is that they both feel important, like yes. uh, just as people. And I think Guardiola makes all has always made Grealish feel very important. Yeah. He was one of his biggest defenders when Grealish was getting criticism early on in his City career, and he's one of his biggest champions when City are playing well. And I think. He's taken to Doku um, really well. I think he instills a lot of confidence in him. And with the keeper situation, although Ortega is brilliant, I think he know he's always made it clear to Edison, you know, you're my guy, and you, I'm, I'll stick with you. And um, but he's also shown Ortega that you're not just going to play. Um, you're not just going to play in these dead rubber cup matches. I'll play you all the way through. And if Edison's, like we saw the other week, Edison's travelled well, I'm going to play you in a Premier League match because I have that much faith in you. I think I think the problem you get with two players in a position is when they don't feel important, like we're seeing at Arsenal now in the keeper situation. And I think once once the players start to feel just um, interchangeable and then they're, like, they're not very valued then you start to get issues and a bit of toxicity but as long as they both feel valued valued, and you instill confidence in them it can only benefit the team I think that's really perceptive George because I think that I think that runs through the DNA of that City dressing room and all the players understand it and when a player doesn't understand it like Cancelo he's, he's ousted because he didn't his his criteria for feeling important was based only on you must play me. Mm. He didn't understand the bigger picture, the strategy. I'm going to arrest you for this. I'm going to play this person for this. You're not right for this game, but you're right for that game uh, in the week. 
So I think um, that that you're right, that, that as long as a player feels valued and they know what their role is, not in the team, but in the squad, and over the course of the season in all the competitions we go, he'll they'll be fine. If Jack's rested on Saturday, he'll be fine. If Doku's rested, he'll be fine. It, it's that spirit that, that and that kind of culture that Guardiola has has cemented in that in that team. And uh, yeah, and and I think it's one of the most positive things which he's done over the last six or seven years. Excellent, right, gentlemen. It's time to go home. But before we go home, I need a score prediction, Chris. There's nothing f- that Bournemouth have in their arsenal of weapons that, that concerns me at all. They're quite a blunt instrument. And I think that if we score one within the first 30 minutes, it'll be a bit of a feast. So I'm going to predict 4 0. George? I'm going to go with back to back 3 0 wins. Lovely. I predicted 4 0 on the Premier League show, so I'm sticking to 4 0, Chris. Uh, nice it. shout. Right. That's it. That's us. Um, I guess the the only thing left to say is we're all Fulham tomorrow, aren't we? We all. Oh, I. Oh, we, I. We, we, we all. We all. We all want to see the foot continue to come down on Man United. Right. Enough, George. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Chris, thank you very much. Pleasure as always. To everybody listening, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the 9320 podcast. We have the 9320 player. We do hours of content every week. If you're not a member, go to our website, check it out, go to SoundCloud, check out the clips. If you like it, sign up. In the meantime, be safe, be well, and as always, up the treble winning blues.